Georgia Republicans help force Speaker Kevin McCarthy to begin an impeachment inquiry into President Joe Biden. These are allegations of abuse of power, obstruction, and corruption. And they warrant further investigation by the House of Representatives. Welcome to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. I'm AJC Washington correspondent Tia Mitchell. On today's episode, we'll discuss how demands from Georgia Republicans like Marjorie Taylor Greene helped trigger an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden. I'm Patricia Murphy, David Perdue and Kelly Leffler in the Fulton Probe's crosshairs and the ongoing crisis at the Fulton County Jail. Get our women and men of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office the tools they need to really combat this, this urgent crisis that we have. I'm Bill Nygut. Fannie Willis sent a blistering letter to Congressman Jim Jordan refusing his demand. She testified about her indictment of Donald Trump. What happens next in this standoff? And I'm Greg Bluestein. One of the state's most fascinating congressional races is heating up in Atlanta suburbs. We invite you to follow us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode of Politically Georgia. Guys, before we begin, what an experience we had just a week ago in Athens for our live show. It was so much fun to be there, to be with before hundreds of students, faculty, staffers, listeners talking about everything in Georgia politics. I just want to say I listened to the podcast from vacation in Cabo. So, you know, <laughs> hate, hate to not be there with you guys, but Cabo was calling. But it was such a great conversation. Um, the kids are all right. You know, I started singing Whitney Houston. I believe the children are <laughs> Anytime you can roll on Whitney, that's it. And um, I do believe the children are a future. And those were not children. Those were grown adults, young men and women. And to your point, Tia, I mean, my goodness, anytime I start to stress about the future, which is just about every day, um, an experience like that and seeing those students at the University of Georgia and how interested and committed and curious they are, I'm not worried anymore. I feel good about it. Yeah, in the middle of the of the podcast, and I actually mentioned it, um, I looked out at all of them and I thought, well, my generation has blown it. So all of you out there who were asking questions about guns and about the environment, all that, you're the ones who really can make a difference. And, and that was really uh, a wonderful feeling to have if they will take that responsibility. And I think they will. Well, guys, a couple of people came up and said, you guys should take this on tour, do a bus tour. I think it's a great idea as long as the Shaney B doesn't get too stressed out by that very thought. <laughs> do you need a special driver's license for a bus? We need to make sure he's all licensed up. I'm, I'm concerned. I can just picture me now taking out mailboxes, telephone poles. <laughs> We're coming yeah. to you, McDonough. Okay, let's take a quick break. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. What does motion sound like? With Kizik Hands Free Shoes, it sounds a little something like this. Experience the magic of motion. Get a free pair of socks with your first order at kizik.com slash socks. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, 
to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Hardline Republicans from Georgia helped force an impeachment inquiry into Joe Biden to appease Donald Trump supporters. Tia Mitchell, our Washington correspondent, has been tracking this throughout. We've been watching the rhetoric from Andrew Clyde, from Marjorie Taylor Greene, saying that they wouldn't vote on uh, a budget deal on a, on a, a, a a crucial deadline coming in September 30th if there wasn't an impeachment inquiry. Tia, it looks like they got their way. Yeah, I think it's really interesting when you look at what Marjorie Taylor Greene has been saying, which is that she's willing to, you know, force a shutdown of the government over wanting to have this impeachment investigation. And we know that she has the ear of Speaker Kevin McCarthy. We also know that Kevin McCarthy was looking for a path forward because um, conservatives, not just Marjorie Taylor Greene, but you mentioned Andrew Clyde, Matt Gates is another one. Um, they don't all want the same thing, but collectively there were enough of them that were with the House returning on Tuesday, looking to create a big headache for Kevin McCarthy. The question, and of course it's too early to tell, but the question is, will this appease um, enough of those hard liners that he can move forward on some type of stopgap government spending, or will they just continue to ask for more? And Patricia, what makes this different is this is not going to be an up or down vote in the House like we've seen in the past on an impeachment, right? There's not going to be a formal vote. Instead, this is a unilateral announcement from House Speaker McCarthy, who only has a five-vote margin in the House, and he's going to assign three committees, oversight, judiciary, and ways and means to carry out this inquiry. Marjorie Taylor Greene has already warned it could go through next year's election. This this is going to be a trend, uh, an ongoing news development every day for Republicans. Yeah, and McCarthy is coming at this from an unbelievably weak position. The House, as a part of its um, organizing rules, passed an agreement to allow for a motion to vacate at any time. That means anybody in the chamber can call to remove Speaker McCarthy at any time. And um, that is a vote that, depending on where this group of five, six, eight, ten far-right conservatives are, um, he could lose a motion to vacate. So he needs to really be bending over backwards to give conservatives what he can, but a lot of what they want he can't give. And that's the problem for Kevin McCarthy. So he's got two separate problems. Is he going to lose his job as speaker from somebody like Matt Gates, um, who called an impeachment inquiry a baby step? And the least possible thing that McCarthy could do, you still have on the table the question of um, funding for Ukraine, which the Senate is not going to sign off on any kind of um, unilateral effort to defund the effort in Ukraine. You have the question of funding for the DOJ. Marjorie Taylor Greene has said she wants to impeach um, the head of the Immigration Service. So McCarthy feels like he is juggling knives at this point, And it is just the very beginning of this process. You know, one of the things that's interesting about the timing of Kevin McCarthy's announcement today um, is that um, we know that Marjorie Taylor Greene has been saying for some time now that she does not want to vote for the budget if they don't launch an impeachment inquiry. But she did have dinner 
with Donald Trump just the other night. And we know Donald Trump wants to see uh, Biden involved in an impeachment because he, he thinks it's leveling the playing field somehow. I've been impeached twice. Now Biden is being impeached. So to what extent did uh, Trump really push Marjorie Taylor Greene to go back to Kevin McCarthy and say, we need this now? We don't know. That's speculation. But it wouldn't be improbable that uh, Trump really drove home the point that we need to get this impeachment investigation going, despite the fact that, as you have all pointed out, this was something that McCarthy did unilaterally because he didn't have the votes among his own conference to to move forward with an investigation. So he actually starts from a pretty weak point, even in terms of the investigation, except the three people who he's appointed to lead it are about as hardcore as it comes when it goes to going after comes to going after uh, Biden. And Tia, I mean, Trump doesn't stand alone when it comes to Republican hopefuls for, for next year's White House race. Ron DeSantis has supported an impeachment inquiry. Tim Scott supports an impeachment inquiry. Vivek Ramaswamy does too. So does Nikki Haley. Mike Pence does. So you've sort of seen Republicans coalesce around this idea of at least an inquiry into Joe Biden and, and his positions and his stances. Yeah. And I think that's, you make a point, we need to stress the word inquiry. So basically, this is a more formal version of the investigations that they've already had underway for several months, ever since Republicans, you know, took control of the House in January. So far, there hasn't been any clear evidence that what they've accused former President Biden of doing, which is, you know, getting rich off of his son Hunter's international dealings. They've accused him of taking bribes. Right now, there's no evidence of that. But this more firmly formalizes this investigation. They can now try to, you know, ask the White House to supply documents and things like that. And again, what I've said in the past, and this is what I think Republicans are banking on, they're banking on turning up something, you know, you can start looking in one place and end up at another. Um, anyone who's gone through their significant other's phone will tell you that you can <laughs> say you weren't looking for anything, but then you happen to find it. So, um, <laughs> see, this is what happens when I miss a week. I just Cheryl, come back I'm and I'm just ready. I'm not going to be looking at your phone anytime soon. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so um, I'm single, so I can also make these types of jokes. Anyways, um, you know, so I think they're hoping to find something. Now, Kevin McCarthy has gone back on what he originally said, which is that there would be some type of vote. And again, now there isn't. Um, it's just going to move forward, like you said, Greg, with these three different committees, but all led by pretty big conservatives who are already convinced that President Biden has messed up. Yeah, Tia, it's important to just elaborate on what you said. Despite months of probing by the House Oversight Committee and Republicans in charge of that committee, we, they have not yet found any documents that have linked the president to any of the dealings of Hunter Biden, his son, um, whose finances are under criminal scrutiny, under investigation by special counsel. Yeah, and I'll say I do think that this is going to present a significant pain point for Joe Biden because Republicans are going after his Achilles heel, which is his son. And we know that he is very protective over Hunter Biden. We know that Hunter Biden is already in significant legal peril. And um, the White House 
is required in most cases to answer these subpoenas. So are other private organizations. So are other members of Congress, federal agencies. Um, We just saw um, a contempt of Congress related to the January 6th inquiry uh, for people who have not been responsive to those inquiries. So this is going to have real teeth if this goes forward. And I do think that even if it doesn't turn up anything, as it has not yet, uh, any kind of documents connecting Biden to these activities, it is going to be very painful for him to see his son and the headlines in this way attacked in this way. And that is not the mindset you want your nominee going into a presidential election with. And and I think um, Patricia, I believe I'm right that you're the one who pointed out that this this could go on forever. Marjorie Taylor Greene kind of tipped her hand in an interview she did uh, about this impeachment inquiry when she said, "We will let this take play out as long as it needs to play out," which could easily mean who knows August, September, October of 2024. I think she made it clear they want this hanging over Biden's head all the way through the election cycle, if possible. And headlines every single day on that front. Well, let's switch gears and talk about another probe that is hitting close to home here in Georgia. Throughout the eight-month-long special grand jury investigation in Fulton County, we saw a lot of fascinating developments leak out. But this one must have been held under lock and key because we had really no inkling of this. A report from that special grand jury that was unsealed just a few days ago by the judge revealed that special grand jurors recommended charges against dozens of other officials who were not indicted, including two who we've talked about plenty on this show, former U.S. Senators Kelly Leffler and David Perdue. Patricia, they weren't ultimately charged in the sweeping indictment that we saw last month, but this report showed a majority of grand jurors supported Fannie Willis potentially charging them with being involved in a, quote, national effort to undermine Joe Biden's victory, and David Perdue separately for repeated communications directed to multiple Georgia officials and employees between November 2020 and the runoff of January 2021. Yeah, and we saw firsthand how deeply involved David Perdue and Kelly Leffler were in the conversations and the messaging about challenging those Georgia election results. Kelly Leffler had even planned ahead of January 6th to object to um, the electoral votes that were coming in. And so to me, it was not a big surprise that their names were on here because they were so intimately involved. Um, They didn't get as many votes as the people for him, Fannie Willis did decide to go forward um, with charges. And I think Willis really had to make choices here. Where do I have the evidence? Who do I think I can get a conviction on? That's always been her test. And it's very possible, even if the grand jury who are not attorneys don't know the details, ins and outs of Georgia law, um, they may have thought that these should have happened, these indictments. But it was up to Willis, ultimately, as it is for any DA to decide, can I get this conviction? Is it worth it for my office right now? And she clearly decided no on on a host of people, including Lindsey Graham, along with those other two Georgians. And Bill, to that point, a footnote in that special grand jury report really pointed, to me at least, the challenges of bringing a case against those two politicians. Because one of the few dissenting jurors said that he thought or she thought, whoever that juror was, thought that those actions amounted to, quote, pandering to their political base, end quote, and not criminal activity. 
Yeah, I thought that was pretty interesting. But what I, the other thing that I thought was fascinating about the um, special grand jury report, Greg, I was just zooming through my uh, uh, Twitter feed and I couldn't find the tweet that you sent out, which showed the vote that the special grand jury had on each of these, what, 41? Is that the right number? Um, and it was never close on any of them. There were a couple who got no bill, do not indict, um, two or three, but for the most part, it was maybe one person uh, who dissented from each of these 41 uh, possible people to be indicted, which I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, and all it takes is one one juror holdout to, to hold up the, to hang the jury, right, Tia? Yeah, that's what I thought that was interesting, Bill's point, because when you looked at the totals, Leffler in particular had one of the lower totals, still a majority, but I think it was 14 of the 23 or something like that. And we remember on January 6th, she reversed course after the riot and was like, hey, I'm not going to do this anymore. And then I think it's also interesting that David Perdue kind of put himself in this predicament Even though we at the AJC, I remember Tamar Hallerman wrote an article, he wasn't even going to be in office to reject Georgia's electoral votes. He was out of office by then. And so he made all these promises to help Donald Trump reverse the outcome of the election, even though he himself couldn't directly have a role in that. And so I think it's so interesting that the grand jury still determined that Again, a majority of them more than felt Leffler should be indicted. A few more thought that David Perdue should have been indicted. And we know from extensive reporting and from David Perdue's own remarks and interviews to me at the AJC that he also said he directly pressured Governor Kemp to call a special session to help out Donald Trump. So that's come out in debates, that's come out in interviews, and that could be something, we're not sure, but that could be something that special grand jurors looked at as well. There is a motion pending in in, in court to unseal the actual grand jury, the special grand jury, some of the details of that investigation, some more of the transcripts of their interviews with the uh, the more than 75 witnesses. So we could still see more, but right now that's what we know. And I looked up those vote totals just so we have um, a, a little bit more accuracy. Um, the vote total for Senator Purdue is 17-4 for Kelly Leffler's 14-6. So majorities, but still a significant minority was against uh, indicting both those. And, you know, the Prosecutors only have finite resources um, to, to go after. What, um, do you have all those numbers in front of you? What was yes. the Lindsey Graham vote? Lindsey Graham vote is 13 to 7. Oh, okay. So he was he, he, there was a real split on him. There was a real split with Lindsey Graham. And remember, part of the complication of that is there is a phone call between Lindsey Graham and Brad Raffensperger. Both sides agree there was a phone call, but there's no known recording of that phone call like there is with Raffensperger and Trump where you can listen to it with your own ears and it can be admitted into evidence. And so there's differing accounts to how that phone call went down. And so I think that's, that's another complication with bringing those charges. But, you know, Tia, this brings me back to just 2020, 2021, with all the escalating pressure on the senators, Purdue and, and Leffler, to do anything they could to ignite the Trump 
base at a time when Senate balance really hung in the line. And I remember one rally in Valdosta in late 2020, where you could not even hear either of those senators speak. It was so loud because there was chance of fight for Trump that was reverberating off this, this airport hangar in South Georgia. That was my wake up call to me that the, the tough road ahead for these two you know, Trump loyalists. It wasn't like they were moderates. These were Trump loyalists who felt like they had to keep on kind of one-upping each other on how, how they were going to express their loyalty to the former president. Right. And it showed, uh, to to your point, it again was one of our earlier indicators how the Republican Party has really been reshaped by Donald Trump, where for his base, and right now his base controls the party, Loyalty to Trump is the most important characteristic to be considered a true Republican. It's not so much about policy or consistency. Um, We saw Kelly Loeffler really embrace Trumpism, embrace being MAGA when she was appointed to the Senate in ways that surprised a lot of people who knew her prior to her Senate service. You know, they felt they thought she was going to be a moderate suburban Atlanta mom who could speak to those moderate suburban moms. And instead, she spoke to the far right. You know, when their names came back up, it reminded me of something about the runoff election. We all tend to give Donald Trump uh, credit blame for the fact that uh, Leffler uh, and Purdue lost the runoff because Donald Trump had undermined the integrity of the election among his own voters. Hey, we're not going to go vote because if Donald Trump says it's all fraudulent. But after all, Kelly Leffler and David Perdue during the runoff called for Brad Raffensperger, the Secretary of State, uh, to resign from office. Well, if you're calling for the guy who runs the election to resign, you're not exactly imbuing confidence in your voters that they should turn out at the polls. They share some of that blame. Oh, of course. They share that. They share some of that blame. Uh, their tactics were so distinct from each other, even. You know, Kelly Leffler participated in that final debate. Um, uh, the, the GPB hosted, the Atlanta Press Club organized. Uh, she would talk to the media. David Perdue did not participate in that debate. He could not be found in scrums. You could, you, you know, it was very rare that he would even tell the media where he would be on a given day. I would rely on activists who were like, hey, he's going to be in Madison in three hours and jet out there just, to, you know, just try to cover him. Um, so very, very distinct campaigns, but both with the same ending result. Hey, before we go to break, Bill, I do want to mention what a, what a week it was for Fonnie Willis in court. You know, there was a number of headline grabbing. She wasn't doing it to grab headlines, but a headline grabbing maneuvers in court culminated with a big victory when federal judge Steve Jones denied Mark Meadows' motion to remove the case to federal court. That could have upended the entire, and it still could, but if that motion had succeeded, that could have upended the entire trial by moving potentially all 19 co-defendants to federal court. It would be a very different trial, still under state rules. We'd have a federal judge, we'd have a slightly broader jury pool, more politically diverse jury pool. And importantly for all of us at home is no TV cameras yeah, in federal no court. Yeah, no TV. Yeah, you know, um, what's interesting about the timing of that is I think it was just maybe a day or two before that, that Trump signaled that he was thinking about asking that his case be 
uh, removed and, and sent to federal court as well. And then, and then Judge Jones issues that very, very specific, very detailed, very strong ruling as to why this was a political activity that uh, Mark Meadows undertook. It was not part of his responsibilities as chief of staff, as a federal employee. And it really does, I think most legal experts um, say that what Judge Jones ruled in the Meadows uh, motion is likely to prevail in the other efforts to move David Schaefer and others who want to move to federal court. And we'll see. There's at least four other pending motions to remove to federal court and we expect Donald Trump will be shocked if Donald Trump doesn't file his own motion in the coming weeks. Yeah. Let's take a quick break. Still to come, we're going to talk about the ongoing humanitarian crisis at the Fulton County Jail. This is Politically Georgia from the AJC. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust, or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. We are not only the host of Politically Georgia, but we're also some of the authors of the Morning Jolt newsletter, which sets the stakes in the agenda in Georgia politics. And you can get it in your inbox every single morning, bright and early, if you're a subscriber to the AJC. Trust me when I say bright and early, because we work on it late at night and very early in the morning. You can join the community right now by going to subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast and get three months of unlimited digital access for less than a dollar. That's subscribe.ajc.com slash podcast, so you always know what's really going on. Patricia, I want to shift to something that you wrote, not in the morning, Jolt, but in one of your twice weekly, sometimes thrice weekly columns on what's happening at the Fulton County Jail, because you wrote about the tragic and humiliating situation at the jail where 10 inmates have died this year alone. Some have been neglected, beaten, bitten, dyed, coated in bed bugs. It's, it's really horrifying when you put it in the terms that you laid out in stark details. And I, one of the questions is, is there a fix here? Well, there is a fix. Uh, the fix probably includes billions of dollars, quite frankly. They need to build a new jail. They need an immediate interim fix, which does not seem to be clear right now. That facility has been overcrowded housing more prisoners than it was ever meant to since the day it opened. Um, and this is a facility that includes people who have not only not yet been convicted of crimes, many of them have never been indicted of the crimes that they're accused of. They are waiting months just for bond hearings. So they're waiting to find out what their bond is so they could pay their bond potentially. Others, if they can't pay their bond, are just waiting there for their court processes to move forward. The Fulton County courts are still very clogged from a COVID um, backlog, and it has created the situation where I think most people listening to this podcast, there's a mantra in kind of layman's criminal justice, you know, do the crime, do the time. Nobody has proved that a majority of the people at the Fulton County Jail have committed these crimes that they're accused of. And yet, it's literally been a death sentence. For even one person, it would be horrific. 
For 10 people, it's just inexplicable. Um, I want to quickly point people to the reporting of our colleagues, to Dylan Jackson, to Shadi Abusaid, and others who have been detailing the conditions down there. The One of the most horrific details, and then I'm going to give the floor to someone else, is that the sheriff said that a number of the stabbings that have happened there have come after the walls of the jail that are crumbling so significantly, prisoners are able to pull pieces of the wall off and fashion them into shanks to stab somebody with. Um, and so that's how some people have died in the jail this year. So it, it, to me, we can't talk about it often enough, loudly enough. Donald Trump said it was a terrible experience, but Donald Trump doesn't know the half of it. You know, Patricia, I I was so glad you wrote a column on this the other day because it's deplorable and we really should not allow this to happen in in our community. Um, Just one example. You talk about these are people who are in pre-trial detention. The most recent death, 66-year-old man, Alexander Hawkins. There still hasn't been, to the best of my knowledge, an explanation for how he died. He was in jail for shoplifting, waiting for a trial. He had a $5,000 bond, which he didn't make, and he's dead. There's just absolutely no excuse for allowing this to go on. I was thinking after I read your column, Patricia, there was a really famous quote, and I couldn't remember who it was, so I looked it up. The quote is, a society should be judged not by how it treats its outstanding citizens, but by how it treats its criminals. It turns out that was the Russian writer Dostoevsky, <laughs> so I don't know <laughs> how relevant it is to us today. But nevertheless, um, the other thing I looked up is the fact that the United Nations uh, Human Rights Commission set standards for how prisoners should be treated in prisons around the world. All prisoners shall be treated with the respect due to their inherent dignity and value as human beings is the opening of that. Now, that's not binding. And a lot of what the United Nations does is just for principles. But it all points to the fact there's no excuse, just no excuse for our allowing this to happen. Yeah. And I just want to point out, you know, I was going to say it goes without saying, but no, I think it has to be said that there are racial disparities in who's locked up in the Fulton County Jail. They're mostly black or people of color, but mostly black. Um, And therefore, the people who are dying tend to be black males. This is also about the poor. One of the things as and I don't want to make light of the 19 people who were indicted as part of the Trump probe. And a lot of them have said, you know, they have financial need, but all of them bailed out relatively quickly. Even um, Mr. Harrison spent several nights in jail, happened to be one of the two black people indicted. And he was the one that could not get bail because of some other things on his record. But I say all that to say, you think that it's easy to post bond, but if you come from nothing, where are you going to get even the 10% to put up to a bail bondsman to, to be able to get out? And that's why so many people are at the Fulton County Jail while charges are pending. So a lot of people say, well, yeah, you know, why was he in jail for shoplifting? His bond probably wasn't that much if he had it, but he might not have 
even that relatively not much for maybe a lot of us listening to this podcast, a few hundred dollars is overwhelming to someone who's already poor and doesn't have it. And those are the things that I think people don't wrestle with. Again, it was easy for those who were indicted to Donald Trump say, oh my God, it was a terrible experience in the Fulton County Jail is a terrible place. They don't know. They didn't make it past the reception area, except for Mr. Harrison. And the people who are drawn to the back are not the kind of people who get the GoFundMes and the sympathy. And to get to that point, we've seen policies at Georgia General Assembly to move away from cash bails. We've also seen policies that would that would enforce new requirements for cash bail. In fact, uh, one measure doing such that was backed by Republicans this year failed to reach final approval in the Senate this past year. So it seems like sometimes Georgia and its criminal justice policies can be schizophrenic in a sense, could, could go both ways. We saw eight years under Nathan Deal of criminal justice overhauls. And now we've seen sort of a, a more of a crackdown on crimes, whether they be violent or, or not nonviolent under Brian Kemp's administration. And I just want to point out to that point, though, as we're talking and there was like, wow, there should be reform. Well, guess what happened when prosecutors decided they were going to start doing some reforms and rethinking who gets arrested for certain crimes? The legislature passed a bill to discipline possibly those prosecutors if they're interpreted as not doing their job. And some of it, it is because these prosecutors were saying certain low level crimes they would not pursue. So it's like you said, Greg, that push and pull of being tough on crime, but also acknowledging you know, the outcomes of being tough on crime, loading up the jails and leading to poor people and people of color being held and possibly dying. Sheriff Labatt was on CNN uh, uh, pretty recently, and the main reason he was there was to talk about the comportment of Donald Trump when he was booked into the Fulton County Jail. But toward the end of the interview, he was asked about the federal investigation into conditions at the jail, and, and let's listen to what he said. The focus has been on us making sure we've been very transparent but also the space that I reached out to the Bureau of Justice, National Institute of Corrections in November of last year and asked for help. We worked with our board of commissioners to really focus on how do we create better a better environment. We inherited this, it, there's no mistake about that. Overcrowding across the country has really, it really taken precedence when you look at uh, the number of arrests, the number of things that violent arrests in, in our facility. So uh, it seems like an anomaly. The fact that the jail is a microcosm of our, our community as a whole really speaks volumes, but we are focusing and, and laser focused on making sure we ask for everything we need and then get our women and men of the Fulton County Sheriff's Office the tools they need to really combat this, this urgent crisis that we have. The problem with that answer is it it yet it is an urgent crisis, and yet the sheriff doesn't have any very specific um, measures that he at least talked about in that interview for how you 
address the problems. Now, I get it. The jail is overcrowded. And part of that is because the courts are backed up and people aren't getting to trial as quickly as they need to. Fulton County Commission is now talking about putting money not into fixing up that jail, but building a new facility. All that is fine. But my concern is when I hear that answer, Patricia, is I just don't know what the next step is and whether the sheriff has a clear plan in mind. I mean, the sheriff needs money. He doesn't have the money to deal with the situation is the reality. He doesn't have the people, the manpower to make it safer right now. Um, He needs money from local, state, federal funds. The DOJ is investigating this, but we don't need an investigation. (laughs) We need a solution. Um, And uh, one final piece of this is the mental health problem. The Fulton County Jail is the state's largest mental health facility. Like, just wrap your head around that. Um, People in this jail are there because they either have been picked up as homeless or because they've committed crimes while in the throes of mental health crisis and addiction. The state has not put money behind that the way their own local sheriffs are telling them they have to. And so this is a shared catastrophe and it needs to be a shared solution. Um, And I'll get off my soapbox right now, but this is in the shadow (laughs) of the Coca-Cola headquarters and Georgia Tech and people are dying and it's just unacceptable. And brand new housing complexes and developments near the Beltline, near the quarry, near some of Atlanta. Yeah. yeah. By the way, many years ago, it was the DeKalb County Jail that was under uh, scrutiny and terribly overcrowded. Conditions were dreadful. Zell Miller happened to have been governor during this period. And one of his best friends was the sheriff of DeKalb County, Pat Jarvis. Um, Pat Jarvis uh, finally had had enough with not getting help for dealing with the uh, crisis conditions in his jail. And one day during the legislative session, he brought a about f- six buses full of DeKalb County inmates awaiting trial and parked them on Washington Street in front of the Capitol. He infuriated Governor um, Miller, as you can imagine. But he also got a lot of attention. He got a lot of media coverage. Now, did he get more money? Yes, but... That wasn't the best solution either, but at least he did something dramatic to try to call attention to the problem. And Bill, in this case, we're talking nearly $2 billion is the estimate for a new Fulton County jail. Construction estimates are rising by the month, though, because of still because of backlogs and and high prices. And look, this is for perspective. The Fulton County's entire general fund budget for fiscal year 2022 was $847 million. So we're talking almost three times, more than two times the Fulton County budget would be required to build this proposed new facility. Well, let's shift gears quickly to another controversial project. Opponents of the proposed public safety complex that would be built in DeKalb County, but for Atlanta public safety officers, uh, the opponents delivered petitions with thousands and thousands of signatures this week in hope of forcing a referendum on the project. They're, of course, angry at Atlanta Mayor Andre Dickens and the 11 council members who support the project. But Patricia Summers also still upset at Senators Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff for not standing against the construction. They say they feel betrayed. Yeah, this is such a complex sticky, multi-pronged problem for Democrats in Atlanta right now. 
there are due process questions. There's the question of the petitions uh, that have not been accepted by the city of Atlanta. Um, Fair Fight is getting involved. That is the last group the Democrats want to have fighting against them. It really feels like the mayor's office's messaging is not out front on this. And then um, the two senators are on the side, but the activists who believe, and they're not wrong, that they helped deliver those victories to John Ossoff and Raphael Warnock, they believe that they can't tell whose side Raphael Warnock, John Ossoff, and Mayor Dickens are on, even after they feel like they helped them get into office, particularly for those two senators. Yeah, it's a really tough position for Senators Ossoff and Warnock, because at the end of the day, Right now, this is a local issue. This is a city of Atlanta issue that has bled over a little bit into DeKalb County because that's where the land is. But Ossoff and Warnock are like two rungs removed. Like they're at the federal level, junior senators. But they understand that politically, they see the tweets, their staff sees the tweets and the social media. And quite frankly, they live in Atlanta. They're very well aware of what's going on, but they're in a tough spot because at the end of the day, they wanna support Mayor Dickens. They don't wanna undermine Mayor Dickens. They don't want to pile on to Mayor Dickens. Mayor Dickens, they need Mayor Dickens to succeed in the job. Um, They want to all be on the same page. So there's reluctance to criticize, even though we know that there have been a couple of junctures where Ossoff and Warnock did step in and say, hey, 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 a little too far, you know, when it came to the domestic terrorism charges, for examples, when they weighed in, um, they've talked about making sure that it's a, a process that's democratic. Now, the other tough spot for Ossoff and Warnock is at the end of the day, they don't wanna look like they're supporting people who throw Molotov cocktails at law enforcement. And so then, so they don't, they wanna support democracy and petitions and first amendment. They don't wanna support chaos in a forest. And unfortunately it's all wrapped up in there together. And so that's also a tough spot. I think privately, Ossoff and Warnock would probably say they would like and hope that Mayor Dickens and the city of Atlanta would get it together because there have been some some steps along the way that perhaps left other Democrats scratching their heads. The decision not to start processing the petitions being just the latest. It's like, why poke the beast? You know, why have people saying you guys are refusing to process these petitions, even though you know why the petitions were turned in now? They had an initial Mm -hmm. court ruling giving them more time, you know, so why not be more cooperative and at least appear that you're trying to allow this process to move forward? Instead, you're appearing that you're trying to impede this process. And it's like, what are you afraid of? Yeah, no, Bill, I mean, this is, Tia hit that point. This is a real tricky spot for Democrats because what was one of the biggest dividing lines in 2020? What was one of the biggest policy issues in 2022 that kept on showing up in polls? It was public safety. David Perdue tried to brand John Ossoff as someone who wanted to defund the police, even though he didn't. Someone who was weak on public safety throughout the 2020 campaign. This is certainly going to come up in 2024 and 2026. And that's that's another reason why they're walking this sort of really tricky balancing act. 
Yeah, I think that's right. But but I, I also want to give a little bit more attention to the people. And by the way, I'm not trying to take sides on this, but, but I do think about the hundreds of people who opposed this police training center, police and fire training center, who were out in the streets all summer in the heat, um, passionately going out, collecting these signatures, believing they had an opportunity to bring it uh, to a referendum. And then because of these conflicting or or uh, confusing court decisions, the deadline for getting the right number of signatures is a little bit unclear. As Tia points out, the city has now decided the deadline that they want to accept was one that's already passed, so therefore they won't accept these uh, signatures. Robbie Ash, who represents the city on this, says, well, we still may accept them if once this court uh, confusion is worked out. But in the meantime, you can imagine that these these people who are so angry with Democrats right now are saying, wait a second, this is exactly what we've been fighting Republicans about, which is trying to not accept the will of voters in things like a presidential election. And now we're being treated that way by the city of Atlanta. And Patricia, last word before the break, but it has set a weird stance where Democrats and Attorney General Chris Carr are in the same, I wouldn't say the same page, but they're, they, they have this strange alliance right now. We did not hear Andre Dickens come out and condemn uh, uh, you know, the, the, the RICO charges against dozens of, of the protesters who are seeking to block the construction of this project right now. So it's very unfamiliar territory for Democrats in Atlanta right now. Yeah, but I think Tia really hit the nail on the head. I mean, they want the the mayor wants this training center. The police chief wants this training center. If you go through the charges, some of them are related to vandalism against Ebenezer Baptist Church. I mean, these are serious accusations, serious charges, as well as uh, arson, setting fire to construction contractors home vehicles vehicles parked at their own homes following people to their homes really aggressive activity and so can they be defending that and also saying and i'm for public safety public safety was a huge issue in 2022 probably underplayed um in many ways and so um it's uh there is no easy way out of that otherwise (laughs) <laughs> Andre Dickens would have taken the easy way out a long time ago. Yeah, this is his first term priority of whether he likes it or not. Okay, let's take a quick break. Just ahead, we're going to talk about the most competitive potential U.S. House race in Georgia for 2024. This is Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. In Atlanta, one voice has stood out for over four decades. An AJC original, The Monica Pearson Show. Let's talk about how you got to ESPN. Revealing interviews. You are known as America's doctor, but I want to know who you were before that. When you have a different name, you have different color skin, it can be tough. With Atlanta's most famous faces as you've never seen them before. I'm telling my story. This is the American dream. The Monica Pearson Show, streaming now on AJC.com. And we're back to Politically Georgia from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Your host, Bill Nygut, Patricia Murphy, Tia Mitchell, and myself, Greg Bluestein, are here with you. With all the news and chaos surrounding the Donald Trump indictment, it's going to be really hard to keep up. So the AJC is putting all of our coverage into one place with our new Trump indictment newsletter. Every Wednesday, you'll have our latest coverage and analysis on this historic case in your inbox. So sign up for free today 
at AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. That is all one word, AJC.com slash indictment newsletter. And don't forget to tune in to the Breakdown podcast hosted by our AJC colleagues, Bill Rankin, Tamar Hallerman, for all the latest on the legal developments in the trial against Donald Trump. Okay, guys, I want to switch to what is, I think, the most interesting or could be the most interesting and maybe the only interesting uh, race for Congress in Georgia next year, because so many of the districts right now are are conceived to be non-politically competitive. But right now, the 6th District could upend that. This district is drawn to be such a conservative stronghold that it would take a miracle for Democrats to win it. It stretches from suburban Atlanta all the way to the hills of Dawson County in North Georgia. It's so conservative that Democratic incumbent Lucy McBath packed up and switched to the neighboring 7th District, where she beat a fellow Democrat last year to stay in Congress. But Tia, now a federal lawsuit accusing Republicans of illegally diluting black voting power, could overhaul the political map. And we already know that Cobb County Commissioner Jerrica Richardson has thrown her hat into the ring. Yeah, I agree. It's so interesting because, number one, to your point, they made the six basically a conservative stronghold. As a result, the seventh became deep blue. It was Mm -hmm. both of them at one point were toss ups. And then the seventh became pretty Democratic leaning but not overwhelmingly until this new map was redrawn. So, but it didn't just pack in black voters, which is why I think this case is gonna be interesting. Even if the courts rule that overall the map diminishes the voting power of black Georgians, that doesn't mean that restoring the sixth district has to be the solution. And that's what makes this all so interesting is that We don't know what may happen if the courts rule that the map should be redrawn. I mean, yes, a lot of people are assuming the sixth and the seventh may be changed because those were the two kind of catalysts for how the new map took shape. But you'll hear people saying that there are black folks in Savannah and Augusta who have been saying that they should be drawn into the same district so they have an ability to have a representative of their choice. Sanford Bishop has had different parts of Macon. And so there's been talk about why Macon is so divided. So there's just a lot of ways this could turn out. And the last point I'll make before letting someone else talk is depending on how, if the maps are redrawn and if the sixth is winnable by a Democrat, but the seventh is also possibly winnable, don't assume Lucy McBath is going to move back to the sixth. Yeah, it's going to be really complicated. Uh, and you're right, you know, there's been uh, focus and scrutiny onto other parts of Georgia, but this legal case does center on the northern Atlanta suburbs. So that is why analysts think it's most likely that if it goes um, towards the plaintiff's way, we could have a redrawing of of this sort of northern suburban uh, the landscape, the political landscape. And one reason why we're also focused, of course, on Rich McCormick, the Republican incumbent from the 6th District, is not just because he represents that territory, but also think about it politically as well. And this is where it gets really interesting, Bill. He is not a creature of the legislature. So many other members of the of Congress got their start, Barry Loudermilk, got their start in the state legislature. He doesn't have, he has connections with the state lawmakers who could re- redraw the maps. Um, but he is not one of them. And so not only is he a freshman 
Republican without that sort of long staying power that some of the other Republican incumbents have. But he is also not uh, as closely tied with the state legislature as some of the other Republicans. And so you're already seeing preparations underway for him getting ready for what could be a, a, a pretty pitched battle. Well, you know, I'm glad you said that. And really, I'd love to hear some other comments on this. Like, so Patricia, we know that in redistricting, not only does the party in power want to draw maps that are favorable to their own uh, party's candidates, but there's also a lot of, you know, good old boy aspects to this thing, you know, who's in favor, who's not in favor. How can you, you know, go to the chairman of the uh, redistricting committee and say, boy, I really need your help on this. Uh, Is there a suggestion here that Rich McCormick may not have that kind of uh, pull with uh, uh, Georgia's uh, Republican delegation? Well, I mean, he's the new kid on the block, right? And so uh, seniority isn't just literally important in many ways in politics. It's just relationships. And so, you know, they know Rich McCormick, they like him, but he's not one of them. They don't feel like they have to take care of Rich McCormick. They definitely feel like there are other members of that body who they have to take care of. Um, Drew Ferguson, Buddy Carter, people who they've known for a long time, who have helped them. Absolutely. Barry Loudermilk is a perfect example because his district makes no sense right now. But you can tell that's been done to say, listen, guys, take care of Barry. You know, it's not because we're good old boys. It's just because we like the guy, you know. So um, it's just natural personal relationships at the state level as well. Those House, those house districts, state Senate districts um, who... How old is somebody? Are they in a good position to retire? Is there another job you could possibly give another Republican, like a judgeship? Give him a job instead of giving him a district. You know, there's so many questions that go into this. Um, another question is going to be, and Republicans are pushing this question: Do these districts need to be redrawn if? there are five black Democrats in Congress. So is that enough black representation that roughly mirrors the black population? It does not mirror, however, the entire minority population. And what does that mean in a court case? And so um, there are just so many moving parts here. And um, literally nobody knows what's going to happen, but you can tell Rich McCormick is having some thoughts because he's already messaging to his supporters, fundraising off of this news and saying they're tr- they're doing everything they can to get rid of me. I don't think they're doing everything they can to get rid of him, but Democrats getting rid of Mitch McCormick would just be for them a happy after effect if they could if these dra- maps got redrawn. And you're right, Patricia. It's all theoretical until we see Judge Jones's decision on this case. Uh, it, it is a two week trial underway right now that wraps up at the end of the week. But back to something Tia mentioned earlier. Jerrica Richardson's not going to be the only Democratic candidate in this race. She's already not the only Democratic candidate in this race. You might not end up running if the ra- if, if the seats don't get changed. You can always pull back her uh, her candidacy. We've seen it happen plenty of other times, but already Bob Christian, who was runner up last year in the same race, he's already filed paperwork to run again. We've heard rumblings that State Senator Josh McLaurin could run if the district is drawn uh, with a North Fulton Center. I wouldn't be shocked to see State Representative Michelle Au thinking about running as well if the same thing happens. And Tia, as you mentioned, Lucy McBass allies say she hasn't ruled out switching districts again. She might stay in the seventh, but she hasn't ruled out switching to the sixth, depending on how everything shakes out. She's still, that's her sort of political base still. Right. And now she's cultivated 
a base in that whole kind of arc, you know, not just the Gwinnett, the Cobb, you know, she's got both of them kind of sturdy. And also we can't throw out that Lucy McBath might run for something non-Congress in the future. She's been in the mix for possibly statewide office or another type of office. So I think, of course, this is very premature because at the end of the day, we know that should the courts rule in the plaintiff's favor, at least initially, the Georgia General Assembly will have the first crack at the remedy, which still puts things in the hands of Republicans. Now, we're seeing in Alabama that Mm. that legislature got the first crack and the court said, "Okay, you're not taking it seriously. Never mind. We'll do it for you. Whiffed. Um, But there are so many ways this could play out, um, even if the plaintiffs do win in court. And my gut tells me if Georgia Republicans get that chance, they won't blow it. I, I think they're, they're not going to do what Alabama did. But we'll see. And I can tell you this. Republicans are quietly making preparations for a special session if Judge Jones goes uh, goes towards the plaintiff's direction in his ruling. Uh, and we could see a special session around the holiday season here at Georgia. Okay, that is all the time we have for today's show. Coming up on Friday's episode, we're going to answer your questions from the listener mailbag, which you can now call into. It's the Politically Georgia podcast hotline. You can call anytime, day or night. Leave a question and we'll play it back and answer your question right here on the podcast. The number is 404-526-AJCP. That's 404-526-2527. Producer Shaney B. and his dedicated, loyal legion of interns are standing by. We can't wait to hear from you. Ready to go. And before we go, the Politically Georgia podcast is a very special announcement. We arrive on your podcast platform Wednesdays and Fridays at 4 a.m. So it's waiting for you when you start your day. But beginning next week, September 20th, it's going to arrive in your feeds a little bit later in the day. We're going to be recording each podcast on Wednesday and Friday mornings, then publish it that day by 1 p.m. That move is to kind of set the stage for our new radio program, which will air on WABE at 10 a.m. starting later this year. But it also means your political news will be a little bit fresher. Well, thanks so much for listening to the Politically Georgia podcast. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today in the episode summary of this podcast. We release new episodes every Wednesday, every Friday, or whenever big news breaks. We'll see you next time on Politically Georgia from the AJC. Your dog's going crazy, Patricia. Oh, I thought I had it muted. I'm so sorry. Hip-hop is a product of black people. It's a product of black song and celebration. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution presents Hip-hop's most pulled elements are pulled from the South. A Southern hip-hop store. We always go back to that moment of the Source Awards. Everybody wants a rhythm, but they don't want your blues. The biggest names in hip-hop. Atlanta is still the mecca for hip-hop. 50 years. No one can deny. One film. The power of the South now. The South got something to say. Streaming now at AJC.com slash hip-hop. Donald Trump has been indicted in Atlanta. We have so many court dockets to follow, but we haven't really seen anything yet. The Atlanta Journal-Constitution has covered every moment of this historic case. I've been writing about this investigation for two and a half years. Our team is led by reporters Bill Rankin and Tamar Hallerman. Follow our coverage on AJC.com and listen to new in-depth episodes of the award-winning podcast, Breakdown, The Trump Indictment, only from the Atlanta Journal-Constitution.